Hello and welcome to the Expanding Eyes podcast once again. Last week we inaugurated a discussion of Homer's Iliad, traditionally speaking the first and the fountainhead text of the Western tradition. We now have older texts such as the Gilgamesh epic, but in terms of history and influence for hundreds of years, it all began in Western literature with Homer, and that meant with the Iliad. And the Iliad itself begins with the very first word in the original Greek text being the word for rage goddess, rage muse. Sing the rage of Achilles, the hero. And that rage is contagious. That is the real subject of the Iliad, not the Trojan War in general, not even the career of Achilles, who is still alive at the end of the epic, although he is fated to die soon after that. But the real focus is thematic, and it is on this business of rage. And that rage is contagious, as human strong emotions always are. And by the end, even of just the first book, it has spread all the way up to the top of Mount Olympus and results in the quarrel between Zeus and Hera, the king and the queen of the gods. Doesn't go any higher than that. What is that rage all about? What caused it? And to recap, to remind us after a week's gap of where we were and what we had discussed last time, we see that the rage results from an assembly called by Achilles in Book One to discuss the crisis of a plague sent by the god Apollo. It is called a plague. In another place, it is said to be Apollo shooting his silver arrows, but that is simply a metaphorical version of the literal plague. And literal or figurative, what it signifies is that Apollo is angry and the seer, Calchas. We are here looking at the Achaean or Greek side of the Trojan War and the Achaean seer, Calchas, informs people in the assembly that Apollo is angry because they have made a mistake. They have sacked a town called Thebe and divided up the war prizes, which unfortunately includes the women of that town. And a girl named Chryseis was given as a war prize to Agamemnon. That was a mistake because it turns out that Chryseis is off limits. She is taboo because she is the daughter of the priest, and the Apollo's priest's daughter may not be given as a war prize. So Agamemnon is going to have to give her up, otherwise Apollo is going to ensure that he's not going to have an army left after very much longer. But Agamemnon refuses to accept that, and instead yanks away Achilles' war prize from him. In a public and shaming ceremony, 
simply arbitrarily takes Achilles' war prize, a girl named Briseis. Instead of Chryseis, he will take Briseis. Achilles then is filled with rage and they, the two of them get into a furious shouting match that results in Achilles' refusal to fight for the greater part of the epic in which he is supposed to be the hero. He does not go back into battle until the last quarter of the entire Iliad, and the Iliad is a very long poem. That led us to think about what is going on here. When I teach the Iliad in class, I ask the students their impressions of the hero and his commander-in-chief, and because we tend to judge naturally enough by our own standards, we really don't think much of these men. They act like kids squabbling on a playground over toys. At least that's the modern point of view. And it is not entirely untrue. I am not denying at all that we have two supersized egos here, two superstars with egos to match. And as we all know, some things in human nature are cross-cultural. When two big egos get up against each other, it's bad for everybody in the environment, and so it is here. However, we have to be careful about judging this and many other things in older literature strictly by modern standards. We have to do what anthropologists are trained to do in studying a foreign culture, and that is to attempt to detach from our own cultural values and postpone any judgment until we think we thoroughly understand from the inside the values of a very different culture and not automatically assume that we know best and that our ways are best and that these people must either be immature or savages or something or other. To try to understand from the inside, and that leads us here to a whole series of insights that may go all the way back to reflect upon our own culture and what we think, perhaps a little too quickly, are our own very different and maybe superior values. Because the world of the Iliad, both sides of it, are a literary example of what some social scientists in the 1950s deemed a shame culture. A shame culture is a culture where you receive your identity entirely from your peer group, your status and reputation among your peers, which here would be, of course, the other Achaean warriors, all of whom are aristocrats and rulers in their own right, even though Agamemnon is commander-in-chief. And you are pressured to maintain that status. This is what the scholars have called, Homer does not use this phrase because Homer does not deal in abstractions, he simply dramatizes, but the scholars will sometimes refer 
to the heroic code or the heroic code of honor in the Iliad and not just in the Iliad as we shall see. But here there is a code that the warriors don't talk about because they have all internalized it from childhood, from growing up. This is the code of their society and it is a code of what is translated as honor or glory, but the Greek word kleos actually doesn't, that's very misleading because our words honor and glory have a very different meaning than what kleos means in this culture, which is something more, as I say, like status or reputation. And if we were to make a little codified list of the elements of the so-called heroic code, it would begin with that, that you must have status, you must have reputation or honor, even though that's a problematic term for it because a lot of what we would call honorable in fact might go against this code. But you must maintain your status in the group. And how do you do that? Through competition, through a kind of self-proving competition. The usual way, of course, for these warriors would have been in war, but not entirely. The whole culture is permeated with the spirit of competition. Right now, as I speak, the Olympics are taking place, and the Olympics go back to the entire spirit of competition. If you know their history, you know that the original Greek Olympics were created in order to be what the 20th century philosopher William James called a moral equivalent of war, a substitute for war. Let people compete and win glory and prizes without warfare. But here, it is through warfare, and so you must have status or glory. You gain it through competition of various sorts, and because status and glory are intangible, you need some tangible symbol or signifier of that, some proof that you have that status, and those are the prizes. The prizes whether it's gold or armor or women, are not there for their material value. They are there for their symbolic value, signifying your status, your glory. And if you lack status, you suffer the polar opposite. You suffer shame or idos. You are humiliated. I make point out at this moment in passing that my most recent newsletter, the Expanding Eyes newsletter, for February 11th is about revenge and about the feeling of shame and humiliation that drives revenge. And it was inspired, as I freely admit, by beginning to talk about the Iliad here in the podcast. So the two are connected. But at any rate, here, these men are competing for status, and it is a public competition. 
There are two ramifications of this. One will meet us later. This does not mean that they don't care about anything but their status. When we get to a noble warrior like Hector, we find that Hector also cares for his family, his wife and child, and for his city. He shoulders the whole burden of Troy on his shoulders, really more even than the king. And yet, when push comes to shove, those are and must be secondary. They have to come second. Whereas for us, that's the problem with translating Cleos as honor or glory, because for us, it would be honorable to fight for your city, for your family, for your child, and dishonorable just to fight for a big reputation and a bunch of status-symbolizing war prizes, but not to them. As they say, that will meet us more later with Hector. Here, in Book One, looking at Achilles and the Achaean side of things, we have the new condition in this quarrel of an enormous pressure on both men not to back down. That's the issue. Yes, two big egos, and perhaps people who were a little more moderate might have come up with a result from this assembly that it was a little less catastrophic. Nevertheless, there is still a pressure not to back down. And Agamemnon at one point says, if I go without a war prize, even though Achilles is urging him, hey, dude, delayed gratification, we'll get you another war prize when we sack the next city, that may sound reasonable, but neither man can afford to walk away without a war prize. Neither man can afford that because it would be a loss of face. To take a phrase from traditional Japanese culture in the past, which was also a shame culture. And they cannot back down, and it is no good for us to say, well, you shouldn't care what other people think, because we don't live in that type of culture. We live in what those social scientists contrasted with the shame culture, a so-called guilt culture, in which the primary value was an internal conscience, whether we think of that as the voice of God or simply the voice of a moral code. Nevertheless, something inside, it's much more individualistic. And we say, I don't care what anybody thinks. I don't care if the Holochian army stands out against me. I march to a different drummer. I cannot go against the demands of my conscience, even if the whole world is against me. That's a different set of cultural values. And there is a clash here. Now, having set up that polar distinction, the next thing you have to do is immediately begin complicating it and realizing that probably no culture is entirely one or the other. We have many pockets of modern society 
that are very much still driven by shame culture type of values of status and reputation. Sometimes it's on the very highest levels, multimillionaire business people always competing and seeking status and having their war prizes. We even speak of trophy wives. After all, is it that much different? All the way down to the grassroots level of the status code of high school. If you want a perfect example of shame culture, look, at least in the American system, at high school culture, which is why you get people like the school shooters who are all humiliated males, or at least they think they are, who have been rejected by the rather ruthless status system and are regarded as losers and are seeking revenge. It is absolutely no different than what is going on in the Iliad and what goes on elsewhere. As I say in the newsletter for February, February 11th, Donald Trump is totally possessed with this kind of spirit. He divides the world into winners and losers long before he was even president, running a show like The Apprentice. You're just a loser. And he loves to have contempt for losers because it bolsters his self-image as being a winner. We are still driven in many ways by the same type of thing going on in the first book of the Iliad. That does not mean that we admire what Agamemnon and Achilles are doing and saying here, but we understand that, well, something about human nature is transpiring here, perhaps in a rather uncomfortable way. So neither man can back down, and therefore, Agamemnon, who has the power to make this happen because he is the ultimate ruler, does take away Achilles' prize, and Achilles' only recourse then, that is humiliating to him, is to do what, again, to us looks spoiled and childish, stalks off and refuses to fight, and sulks in his tent for book after book after book. Not, however before going down at the end of the uh, first book to the water and weeping, where he is overheard by his mother, Thetis, who is a sea nymph at the bottom of the sea. Well, the first thing I know from teaching the poem for many, many years, one thing to deal with here is another modern preconception, which may in this case be largely an American, or maybe English-speaking, kind of social reflex, and that is America has a whole movie called Boys Don't Cry. We are not, as males in American society, allowed to weep except on very special, delimited occasions. I was at a funeral yesterday, and the son of the deceased man choked up a couple of times speaking of his father, and that would be totally approved of. But in other cases, for a male to cry, and I've had students who really just thought these guys were babies, 
as I say, that is a kind of American value that men only cry in the kind of very last extremity. Other cultures do not have that value so much. And, you know, on my Italian side, it's not even true of my father and Italian relatives. We are much more labile and emotional than that under many circumstances. Whatever is better or worse, um, our notion that men have to, at all costs, hold all their emotion in instead of letting it out weeping, that's not true of this culture. No one regards someone like Achilles as weak in this culture because he weeps at a moment like this, whatever we think. So he goes down and, in a modern view, cries and his mom makes it even sound worse from our set of values. You go down and cry and then your mom says, oh, my poor boy, I'm going to go see the principal and make this all right. You've been terribly mistreated by the other boys. Again, we have to set that aside and see what's really going on from Homer's point of view here. And from Homer's point of view, Achilles has been shamed and has been wounded in a very real way, and a way that is not of his making. It's not his fault that his prize was taken away. And up comes his mother named Thetis from the water because she is a Nereid, which is a particular variety of sea nymph. In other words, she's a goddess, a minor goddess, not one of the ruling Olympians, but nevertheless a supernatural being, so that Achilles is actually of half-divine parentage. He has a mortal father, Peleus, and an immortal mother, Thetis. And this was vanishingly rare. Uh, usually the gods do not have anything that much to do with mortals. There are certainly exceptions, and Achilles is not the only hero to claim some divine parentage, but in general, it was unusual. The gods and goddesses did not get themselves involved with mortals, if for no other reason than, hey, they only live, it's like having a pet, they only live a few years and then they die on you. Nevertheless, this was a kind of enforced marriage. And it was brought about by Zeus himself in order to forestall a prophecy that the son born of Thetis would be greater than his father. And so he was given away to Peleus rather than have a challenge to Zeus himself. And mom comes up from the water and says, oh, my poor boy, I will go make this right for you. And up she goes to the top of Mount Olympus and is going to ask a favor of Zeus himself, justice for my son. Zeus knows what she's there for and is, to put it mildly, not happy about it. She's going to ask for 
the, tr the Achaeans to lose. Now, Zeus cannot grant that entirely to have the Achaeans lose the entire war because, as we'll talk about at a later point, overruling even the will of Zeus is fate or moira. Troy must fall, but the second best compromise is that nevertheless, for a long time, we're going to punish those mean old Achaeans for shaming my son by making the Achaeans lose, and that'll teach them. And Zeus knows that he's going to have to grant this because he owes Thetis a favor. And it says that in the text, that one time, and this shows us as so many, if you're a careful reader, you gain little windows into the background of both the culture and the narrative and mythology. One time, there was a revolt by the Olympians against the rule of Zeus. There was an attempted insurrection, to use a word that's kind of a touchy one with us Americans right at the moment, telling us implicitly that Zeus maintains his power entirely by force and intimidation. His own clan of Olympians only obey him as king because he can make them feel afraid of his power. But one day, they succeeded actually, or nearly succeeded in overthrowing him, and Thetis rescued Zeus by calling up some monsters called the Hundred-Handed to aid in the freeing of Zeus. So he owes her one big favor, and he knows he's going to have to grant that, but he's in a lose-lose situation because, as he rather humorously says, Disaster, you will drive me into war with Hera. She will provoke me, she with her shrill abuse. Even now, in the face of all the immortal gods, she harries me perpetually. Hera charges me that I always go to battle for the Trojans. My dear beloved wife, Hera. If you have a wider knowledge of both the Homeric epics and the other uh, works of Greek literature and mythology, you know that this is a common trait of the marriage of Zeus and Hera. They are always quarreling, and it is usually because Hera is jealous. It's a little different here, but often because Zeus is always philandering and Hera is always jealous. I've always wondered about the sort of black humor of the Greek way of making Hera the goddess of marriage. Is this some sort of satiric commentary on the war of the sexes and marriage? But at any rate, Hera and Zeus often quarrel. Here, they quarrel about the Trojans. Hera hates the Trojans, and we know that from studying the later epics. She still hates the Trojans clear on to Virgil's Aeneid because she lost the judgment of Paris. Paris, the Trojan, 
judged the beauty contest between three goddesses and did not choose Hera. And that is, again, competition, this time female competition. The women didn't go to war against each other, but they competed in their own way. So it's all competition. It's all loss of face and humiliation. So Zeus has no good choice. He knows he's going to have to grant the favor to Thetis. Nevertheless, he also knows, and he's right, that Hera is going to go ballistic about this. And they get into a shouting match, husband and wife. And at the very end of book one, peace is finally made by another figure that again gives us a sort of window into other aspects outside the narrative line itself. And in this case, another god, Hephaestus. There are a couple of deities in the group of Olympians, which traditionally is numbered 12, although nothing was codified in Greek mythology and that's arbitrary. But among the Olympians, there were a couple of deities that were sort of strange exceptions. One of them, for example, is a kind of foreign import, and that is the god Dionysus, who originally came from the East, and is perhaps the strangest of all the Olympian deities. But in his own way, Hephaestus here is also an exception to the rule. And if we follow the strangeness and look for reasons, we gain some insights. Hephaestus is a smith. This is the era known to historians as the Bronze Age because it was marked by the technological innovation of learning to smelt and shape bronze, which is an alloy. Doesn't occur naturally, has to be made, and they had learned how to do it. But recently, and it was still a craft surrounded by mystery, and so much so that it was half indistinguishable in their eyes from magic. Hephaestus is half inventor technologist and half a kind of magician. He's not just a working class blacksmith in a sweaty forge, though he has that aspect as well. And that's one of the anomalies. He does have that aspect. He is a worker in metal, and that makes him right there dramatically different from the regular Olympians who, like aristocrats of all cultures, pride themselves on not working, not having calluses on their lily white hands. So he is an exception in that way. And the reason, as historians say, the reason is to signify the unique status. It's a strange, exceptional way of gaining status, but the status that comes with the ability to shape the armor and the other appurtenances of both the deities and the morals. He will, in book 18, make the marvelous armor and shield for Achilles. He is also lame. He walks 
with a limp. And this is not a very sensitive passage here because one of the ways in which he defuses the shouting match is to get the other Olympian deities, first of all, drunk. He serves drinks. And as he limps along serving the drinks, they laugh at him for limping. He is not beautiful and he is handicapped. That is also unique amongst the deities. We all know those beautiful Greek sculptures, the human perfection. And Hephaestus does not match that ideal. The limp, there is a whole book by the literary critic Edmund Wilson called The Wound and the Bow about wounded or handicapped people of exceptional talent. And this is true not just in Greek culture and mythology, but the smith in Norse mythology, Wayland, also walks with a limp. The price you pay for genius, for talent, it is a compensatory thing. At any rate, Hera is trying because he is the son of Hera, not of Zeus, but of Hera. Now, this does not mean that Hera has also been philandering. At least one version, and there are more than one, is that Hera produced Hephaestus by herself without the aid of a male through what biologists call parthenogenesis. Well, whatever, but at any rate, he's trying to protect his mom here, but he is wary of this. And he says at one point, you remember the last time I rushed to your defense, he, meaning Zeus, seized my foot, hurled me off the threshold, and all the way down I dropped. And he plunged down to the island of Lemnos, where immortals cannot die, but they can be injured and hurt. He had to be nursed back to health again. So he's had a warning about what it means to cross Zeus, and he's wary of it, but he does manage to succeed. An extraordinary episode, but at any rate, that puts an end to the council on Mount Olympus, and it means that Zeus will make the Achaeans lose for a good while. He procrastinates, and we don't see it immediately, and for several books afterwards, as we will see next time, the Achaeans continue to win until all the way to book six. The Trojans are backed up desperately against their own walls, but eventually Zeus will contrive that the Achaeans will lose, and they will continue to lose until they are driven all the way back, not to their walls, but to their ships where they are trapped between the Trojan army and the sea and are desperate. And it's only at that point that Achilles has agreed in a prior agreement that he might consider coming back. And we will follow the course of those events beginning next week. Mm -hmm.